Welcome to the Church of Rocky Peaks downloadable messages and podcast. Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Good to see you. Uh, awesome to be here. Um, a couple things. Uh, one, I want to just affirm you as a congregation. You know, it's uh, uh, every month we have what we call a next step dessert at our house, and it's uh, about 20, 25 people, usually new people at church. And it's just exciting to hear the stories of what God's doing, who he's bringing, how they're coming. And we had one last night. And unless uh, several people said, and I hear this almost every month, and they say, like, this is such a friendly church. And, and they say, you know, that we, we came in and just people loved on us. And I just hear that over and over again. And so I just want to affirm you for that. Thank you for that. And that that's the kind of church we want to be, right? And just kind of reaching out. And, and so remember that we are growing. And so the people around you may be new. And so don't assume they have a million best friends. And uh, they just, uh, just kind of welcome them. And it was really cool because they said, you know, it's not that superficial kind of Christianese kind of friendliness. You know, it's, it's not that. It's just like it's really genuine. People want to know. They want it excited to be here together. So it's cool. Secondly, I uh, want to uh, give you an update on a great opportunity we have. You know, here at Rocky Peak, the vision is to unleash a movement, a passionate Christ followers. Part of that is sharing Christ. And so we do that not only locally but around the world. And we, we've got things, you know, Pastor Peter was here last week, Uganda, and just different areas. But one of the areas for many years we've been invested with in, is Mexico in a variety of ways. We do prison ministry down there. We've built houses down there. We've had major trips down there. But we have another opportunity coming up uh, next month. It's a whole brand new area. It's, it's not that far from Ensenada. But there's a, a community of people that uh, are really sort of, uh, in, in a way, kind of outcasts in their own land. There are people that have moved from the uh, southern part of Mexico up to this area to, uh, to make a living, but uh, there's only work part-time of the year. They don't speak Spanish, uh, more of an Indian dialect, and so they're, they're almost like uh, kind of the lowest class of their country, often rejected. But it's really cool because the last four years, there's a couple people from this church in Ensenada have just felt like God's putting on their heart to go and share the message of Jesus with them. And so, uh, so a church is beginning to form there, and they've actually purchased property, and they're now at the ready of building their first building, very simple building, but a place for them to meet. And, and so um, we are going to be partnering with them. And so next month, uh, June 24th through 26th, we're going to be combining a couple things. It's, it, it's sort of our, our sharing the message of Jesus and an initiative for the poor that we've been doing. And in June, we're going to be taking a trip down there. We want to take about 75 to 100 people from Rocky Peak that weekend. All the details are in your program, the week, the time, the cost, and so on. But here's what we're looking for, three kinds of people. Uh, one kind of person is someone who wants to help with construction, labor. Uh, we're going to be laying the foundation for this uh, building that weekend. A uh, second kind of person, uh, if you have medical gifts, we're going to be operating in a medical clinic or uh, doing that. Third kind of gifts, uh, we're going to be reaching out to the children in the community as they're forming this church and doing a VBS. And so if those are things that sound like they may have your name on it, uh, I'd love to invite you to join. We're actually going to be taking a special initiative for the poor offering, kind of over and above offering uh, next, uh, next month in June to help one. It's going to take about $15,000 to do the labor we're going to be doing, lay the foundation, get it ready for the building to go up. And so we're going to have an opportunity to uh, give. It's kind of like uh, in, in the New Testament, you know, the Church of Corinth, Paul's taking a special offering for the poor Christian brothers in Jerusalem. So we want to be doing that. So it's kind of combining, uh, extending the message and movement of Jesus and also initiative of the poor in one event. I'm very excited about that. So here's what we need. If you're interested in going on that, you can sign up online. Uh, on our website. You could also, if you want more information, write on your Connect card inside your program, write uh, Mexico, we'll contact you. But our goal would be to get our signups done by the end of May, uh, and then we'll actually do the training for that and get it, all the teams ready in June, so we're ready to go, and we'll take our special offering in June, but I wanted to get it on your radar, okay? And so very excited about 
that. So uh, that is our uh, kind of all of our announcements for today. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at the Church of Rocky Peak. If you're here for the very first time, a special uh, welcome to you. We're going to be going into our time of teaching, and inside your program is a message note sheet we use every week for this. And so if you're new, you, you want to pull that out, uh, 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 follow along, get out your Bibles, get out your iPads, get your phones, whatever. And uh, uh, not to make calls or texts, obviously, uh, but to... Uh, <laughs> I carry my Bible on my phone. I use it all the time. So if you're like me, get that app. No cheating. Uh, I'm texting. Uh, so uh, I'm ready to go. Y'all ready to go? Okay, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, this church and what you're doing and this movement you're unleashing, the people you're bringing, the way we're growing, the way we're learning to give our lives to you in a fresh and new way that's transforming us, changing us from the inside out, and, and really unleashing a true movement of passionate Christ followers. And and Lord, those aren't words for us. Those are the desire of our heart. And so we come today as your church. We come in your name. We come under the protection of your cross. We come under the power of your spirit. We gather around your word to listen to you, to have you speak. And so we pray that you'd meet us now. It'd be a true time of encounter. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you're a regular here at Rocky Peak, you know that typically we start uh, a message. I start with, with a story. I'm not going to do that today because we have a long passage to cover. And, and the passage itself involves some storytelling, so I'm going to save that till later. But uh, for those of you who are new, I want to welcome you. And, and you can see we're in the midst of a series that we've been in now for two or three months. It's a series that's on the wall. It's called Just Do It. It's a study of the New Testament letter of James. Now, uh, if you're not familiar with that letter, James is a, uh, uh, one of the key leaders in the early movement of Jesus. He's actually the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus, but didn't really buy into him until after the resurrection when he realized that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. And so then he went on to become a key leader in the movement of Jesus, and he writes this letter very early on. In fact, most scholars believe that the, the letter of James is the first document in our New Testament written only 10 to 15 years after the resurrection. So it's our first window in to uh, the movement of Jesus, and he's writing to a group of fellow Jewish Christ followers when, when the whole church was basically Jewish uh, very early on. And so if you've been here in this series, you know this, that the letter is extremely practical. We've talked about topics like uh, temptation, uh, anger, management, uh, uh, prejudice, uh, just kind of every week, hard-hitting well, the message today is, is more global, it's more big picture, and it kind of gives the backdrop for everything he's been saying, and, and the message is really about faith, and, and what does it mean to truly believe in Jesus, and, and, what, and how do we grow in our faith? And if I could put it in a nutshell, what James is going to say is that the way you know whether you believe something is whether you act on it. If you claim to believe something, but you don't act on it, you're really just fooling yourself. And that, that this, as we're wired as human beings, that's just the way we're wired. We do what we believe. And so you can tell what we believe by what we do. And so uh, the passage is in James chapter 2, kind of starting at the middle uh, of the passage. There in your note sheet is a section called Real Faith, One Principle, Two Case Studies. We're going to start at verse 14 and go through the, uh, the end of the chapter. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and, and jump in. Chapter 2 and verse 14. So he says, uh, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Now, now in this passage, um, this word deeds, it's, it all, it's going to go back to a Greek word, 
uh, that I won't give you, but the word can be translated deeds. It can be translated words, uh, works rather. It can be translated action. It's all the same thing, okay? Words, deeds. Basically what he's saying is what, what good is it claim to be a follower of Jesus but to have no evidence of it in our life? That's the idea. And he says, can such a faith save him? And of course, the answer is no. And what we're gonna see today is that the true faith acts. And when we say we believe something, and, and we don't act on it. We don't really believe it. And, and so it's really not a real faith. It's what we might call a fake faith or a faux faith. And, and so uh, what we're going to see is that that cannot save us. It can't change us. It can't transform us. It can't connect us to God. And in the Greek, the, um, the, the formation of this uh, actual verse is even clearer. Kind of, it assumes the answer is no. So, so can such a faith save him? Answer no. Suppose a brother or sister, and so this would be someone in the body of Christ, uh, a believer, is without clothes um, and daily food. So he's going to give an illustration. He says, so let's say that in your life group, in your church, whatever, there, there's someone that's extremely poor. In fact, they're so poor that they, they don't have clo- enough clothes to keep them warm. Uh, they don't have enough food to, to keep from being hungry. And so you, they share that need with you, and you say to them, well, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. I hope it works out for you. We'll pray for you. That's awesome. You know, may God provide your needs. He says, uh, uh, well, what good is that? Um, what, what, you know, what good is that? And he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by actions, is dead. It's not the real deal. It, it's, it's not living faith. It's, it's dead. And he says, but someone will say, and he, he kind of pictures someone in the crowd uh, uh, piping up and saying, uh, someone will say, well, hey, well, you have faith and I have deeds. Uh, show, and, and James says, well, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, honestly, this is one of the hardest verses in the New Testament to translate and interpret. And one of the many reasons it's hard is because in the Greek uh, Bible, there is no quotation marks. And so when you read something like this, you have to kind of make your best guess. Where does the quotation start? Where does it stop? And because of that, based on where you put the quotation marks, changes the sense of what's being said here. And so it's a little hard to, to nail down. Different translations will even put quotation marks in different places. But having said that, I think the overall message is clear, that what James is saying is the only way you can tell whether someone truly has faith is by their deeds. You can claim that, well, I believe. He says, well, you know, that's great, but unless I see it in your deeds, your actions, I, you know, there's no way to really verify that. And so he gives an example, and he says uh, in verse 19, you believe that there is one God. Now, of course, this is one of the core beliefs of Judaism. And remember that he's writing to Jewish Christ followers. They've, they've grown up in synagogue. In synagogue, every week when you'd go, the, one of the verses that would be recited would be the Shema from uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and so there's only one God. That was one of the core beliefs of Judaism. There's only one God, maker of heaven and earth. We follow him. And so all the other religions of the nations, uh, their culture, you know, multi-gods, but for the Jew, this, there was one God. And so he says, okay, let me give you an example. You believe that there's only one God. He says, great, awesome. Uh, he says, but guess what? Uh, the demons also believe, and they shudder. So, so remember when Jesus came, and he initiated his kingdom, that one of the signs of the kingdom of God had truly come, he said, is, he says, if I cast out demons by the power of God, the kingdom has come upon you. And so the, the coming of the kingdom was evidenced by the casting out of demons. And so you may remember that when Jesus would cast out demons, they were often terrified of him. You remember they'd say, like, please don't send me back to hell. Please, can, can we just go in the pigs? Can we, you know, they, were, they were terrified of him. 
And so, so James is saying, okay, you, he says, you believe that God is one. You're, you're good Jewish uh, believers. You believe that God is one. Uh, that's great. But guess what? Uh, the demons also believe that. And in fact, they're scared to death. But that doesn't make them Christ followers. <laughs> you follow? You get, you get the idea? So, so here's the thing. One of the things you see today is that when the Bible talks about believing in God, it's not talking about mere mental assent. It's not talking about doctrinal agreement. It's, talking, it's, not, it's, just saying it, it's not just saying it, yeah, I, I, I believe in the fact. I believe that Jesus died. I believe he rose again. He died for our sins. I, I believe in, you know, he's coming out. It's not that you just believe it. In the, in the biblical sense, the biblical word for, uh, for uh, believe, which is the word pescuo, mean, it means to go beyond, yes, I agree. It means beyond going, I affirm that that's true. It means to trust. In fact, the best way to translate in our culture today, the biblical word believe would be to trust. And so when you trust in Christ, it means that I not only believe that you died for my sins, I, I trust you for that. I trust you to save me. I trust you to, to rescue me. I trust you to be my Lord. I trust you to be my God. I will trust you with my life. You see what I'm saying? And so, so he's, what he's saying is that, hey, you believe that God is one. Awesome. The demons also believe that. But they're not saved. Okay. And so, so belief is more than a mental assent to just a, a kind of a doctrinal statement. And so then he goes on, and he says, uh, you foolish man, which is a great way to start any message, uh, uh, do you want evidence that faith without deeds, same word there, deeds, works, uh, actions, all the same, uh, do, you, do you want uh, evidence that faith without deeds or works is useless? Uh, catch that, it's useless, it's of no value, it's, it's worthless. He says, do, you, do you want some evidence? And, and so what he's going to do is he's going he's to go back to the Bible, which all Christ's followers do. We go back to the Word of God and say, okay, if I'm making a point, let me, let me support it with evidence from the Word of God. And he's going to go back to two case studies from the nation of Israel. Uh, the first one's going to be more familiar, second one to you, less familiar. But the first case story is a case story of Abraham. Now, of course, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation, but he's also the father of the faith. I mean, he, he's the ultimate pinnacle epitome of the true believer, and, and that's how he was seen in Judaism at the time and in the early church. He was often as the example of, here's the epitome of faith. And so he says, let's talk about Abraham. And so he says in verse 21, um, was not our, our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did, okay, his actions, uh, when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Now, in the next few verses, he's going to base his argument on the life of Abraham. And, of course, he assumes we're thoroughly familiar. And, of course, his, 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 uh, initial re his, his, his uh, original readers, they were. They're all Jewish people. They've been raised on Abraham. They know, they know Abraham inside and out. And so we may not know Abraham as well. So, so let me step back and let's just kind of do a quick review of the, the life of Abraham, the key points, because he's going to assume we know all these key points as we go along. In fact, he's going to go by them so fast you might miss, miss it uh, if you didn't know what he was talking about. So here we go. Uh, life of Abraham, Genesis 12. All these passages, by the way, are on your note sheet if you want to ch uh, chase them down later. We won't take the time now. Genesis chapter 12. Uh, God comes to Abraham, reveals himself. Abraham had grown up in a pagan land in the land of Iraq. Uh, where they worshiped other gods. And so God reveals himself to him when he's 75 years old. He asks him to follow him, to trust him, to go to a land that uh, he, he won't even tell him where we're going. We just follow me. When we get there, I'll let you know. And he makes a series of amazing promises. I'll bless you. I'll protect you. I'll turn you into a great nation. 
And one day, uh, the whole world will be blessed through you, which is a prophecy about the coming of the Messiah who would rescue the whole world. And so, of course, he doesn't understand all that. All he knows is God has revealed himself, and he trusts this God. And so he steps out in faith, leaves his homeland, leads his extended family, and he travels to a land, not knowing where he's going. It turns out it's going to be the land of Canaan. Okay, so that's, that's stage one of the Abraham story. Stage two comes in chapter 15. Now we've, we've jumped ahead in time about 10 years. He's approximately 85 years old. And, uh, and so uh, he's trying, Abraham's beginning to wonder how this nation promise is going to work itself out. Because to have a nation, you have to start with a son. And, and he doesn't have a son. In fact, he doesn't have any kids. He and his wife have never been able to have any children. They've gone through all the fertility workups and everything. But they've never been able to have any kids. Uh, they've spent a lot of money. And, uh, and so that's why they need God to bless them. But anyway, he, um, he spent a lot of money, and, and, they, and, and they have no children. And so he's wondering, how is this going to work that I'm going to have a nation when we can't even have any child? And so uh, he, he thinks, you know, maybe what God wants me to do is adopt someone as my legal heir, and that's how God wants me to, to do this thing. So he's about to do that. He's considering that, and God shows up a second time, and he says, no, that's not the plan. Uh, I, 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 I wanted it this way. I want to form this nation by miracle. Like, I want this whole thing to be a miracle. And so uh, you will have a son, and he will come from your own body. And so now that's the second part. So we're going to fast forward now 15 years till he's now 100 years old. When he's 100 years old, he and his wife, Sarah, who's 90 years old, uh, they, they have this miracle baby named Isaac. Promises fulfilled. Okay? That's the third part. Now, fourth, fourth part of the story, we're going to jump ahead. We're going to jump ahead 10, 15 years. Everything up to this point has been more nailed down. At this point, it gets a little muddy. We know that the Isaac, the son, is now a yelled uh, in Hebrew. He's a, he, he's a boy. He's not a man, so does that mean he's 10 years old? Does it mean he's 15 years old? We're not sure, but, but, uh, but, but he's, it's, you know, he's, he's old enough to understand everything. And so we're, we're not you know, 10, 15 years down the line. And so God shows up to Abraham, and he asks him the unthinkable. He asks him to take his son, his only son. Does that language sound familiar? Take your son, your only son. Take your only son and take him to the region of Moriah, the mountains of Moriah, which was three days' travel away, and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, this is crazy on so many levels, right? Like, I know some of you kind of wish God would say to you, Here's my will for your life. That 17-year-old son, take him out. Just take him out. Like, take him out. He's gone too far. Like, it's Old Testament. We're taking him out. We're stoning him. It's like, uh, but can, can you imagine as a parent being asked? I mean, it's unbelievable. Okay? Uh, it's really interesting, too, because we're told the God of the Bible later on in Jeremiah 32, we're told that he, child sacrifice is something never even entered his mind. And, and so... So this is kind of crazy, but this is when the, when the earth was young. This was Abraham. He knew very much little about this God. Who, he doesn't know this. It's like that's just what he says. But what's craziest about this is that God had promised to turn Abraham into a great nation, and he only had one son from his wife Sarah, and this was the son. And, and so if you take him out, what happens to the nation? Right? So, so that's the predicament. But, but the amazing thing about Abraham as he'd grown in his faith to this point so far, through all the steps he'd taken in the last 40 years, he had grown in his confidence that he was so confident that God would, uh, would honor his promise and bring about a nation through Isaac. And we're told in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that the, what his, the way his mind was going was, okay, if you want me to kill him, I will, I, but I guess you'll have to raise him from the dead. 
Okay? And so be, there becomes this beautiful, we call it in theology, a type. This, this kind of picture of spiritual truth in the Old Testament that's going to be fulfilled at a much higher level in the New Testament. Kind of a, a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus. Where, where you've got a, a father being asked to give his only son as a sacrifice who will figuratively be raised back from the dead. And so there's a lot going on here. Way more than Abraham understands. All he knows is that God has asked him, and so he, he obeys. He, he trusts this God. They take the three-day journey at the foot of the mountain before they go up. He says to his hired hands who are with him, uh, the boy and I are going up. He doesn't tell them what they're there for. He says, and we will return to you. And so he is absolutely, though he knows he's going up to take the life of his son, he is confident that when he comes back, that, 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 that they're going to come back together. It's just an amazing act of faith. And so when he gets up there, he gets up there to Mount Moriah. By the way, Mount Moriah uh, later on, a temple would be built. This is in the region of the Mar- Moriah, at least. Later on, the temple would be built on Mount Moriah. And, and later on, the Son of God would be sacrificed outside the, the, the Mount of, of Moriah. And, and so you see all this going on. But of course, he doesn't get all of that. All he knows is he trusts his God. And so if you, if you know this story, he's there. He's got his son, he's got his son ready to die. He's ready to pull, pull, the, pull the trigger, the knife, so to speak. And, 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 he, um, and, and God stops him and says, okay. And I, you really do believe me. You really do. This was a test. This was only a test. If this was a real thing, you would have heard, uh, you know, <laughs> you would have had broadcasts or further instructions. Uh, but uh, he says, this only a test. And he says, because you trusted me and because you've obeyed me and because you've shown that I'm the number one in your life, that I would willing to bless you and all those promises I made when you're 75, I'm going to carry them out. And so here, here's what James's point is. His point is back when Abraham was 85 years old and he promised him that he would give him a son, that Abraham believed God. In fact, there was a very, a very important thing that happened there. It's in, back when he was 85 and God said, out of your own body that, you will re- that the son will be born, that it says, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In fact, there in your note sheet, I put this verse for you there. I want you to see this. Abraham believed the Lord. This was when he was 85, and this is when he said, out of your own body, you'll have a son. And he said, well, not out of your own body, but, you know, from your body. Uh, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited him to righteousness. In other words, in other words catch this, very important, that, that what God said is, because you've trusted me, I will consider you a righteous man. I will consider you right. Now, this becomes an extremely important verse. Because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul picks up this verse in Romans chapter 4, if I'm right, Romans chapter 4. And, and he says, when, that, when, God, when the scripture said that Abraham would be considered a righteous man, that his spiritual bank account would be credited with righteousness, when the scripture spoke that, that it was not just for Abraham, it was a prophetic statement for the human race, for the time when Jesus would come and that we all are made right with God, not based on our performance, but based on our faith in Christ and his death for us. Are, are you with me in this? So that way back in Genesis, the same way God's foreshadowing the death of his son later on uh, through the, the Mount Moriah and all that, that God is laying out very early in Genesis, this is the way the human race can be made right with me. It's not through our effort. It's not through our works. It's not through our performance. It's absolutely by faith that God who can do the impossible will do the impossible and make it right. Now, now Abraham didn't understand all that. He didn't understand how we were gonna be made right with God. But in the New Testament, now we understand that we're made right 
through Jesus, that we're, we're made right through the death of Christ, that we are not made right with God through our efforts. We're not made right with God through our works. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Jesus, right? And this is consistent New Testament teaching. And so, so James is going back there, and he says, but here's the thing. If you look back at Genesis 15, where the scripture says, Abraham believed God. Well, what James is saying, well, how do you know that he believed God? He says, you know it because all these years later, he demonstrated his faith when he acted on Mount Moriah. And so his point is, is that true faith always results in works. It always results in action. We do what we believe. And so with that background now, let's fly through this. You'll see his logic as he goes through. He says in verse 22, um, or verse 20. 21, was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he uh, offered his uh, son Isaac on the altar? Okay, what for what he did, in other words, his action. Um, and then he says, you see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete. Underline that word, if you would. It's complete. It's the word perfect. It was, his faith was perfected. Or his faith went to the next level um, by what he did, by his actions. And he says, and the scripture was fulfilled. And this is the scripture from Genesis 15, 6 that's on your note sheet that we talked about. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. And so what is James saying? He says, well, the scripture uh, said that Abraham believed God. But how do you know that's true? Well, it was fulfilled when you saw him all these years later acting on it. And so that's how true faith works, that if you believe something, you act as if it's true. It's just the way it works. Now, next he makes a very controversial statement. And, and here's what he says. He says, you see in verse 24, uh, you, you see that a, a person is justified, or is made right with God, uh, by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, it's interesting. Can you see why this is a controversial statement? Because what we've seen already is the New Testament is so clear in this over and over again that we are justified, we're made right with God, not by our works, but we're made right with God completely by our faith in Jesus. And over and over, it's, it's there, like on your note sheet, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that by grace we were saved, it's through faith, it's not by ourselves, it's a gift of God, it's not of works, okay? And so over and over we've said that, that as Christ's followers, we come under the cross, don't we? That our relationship with Jesus is always based on what he did on the cross when he paid for all our sins, past, present, and future, that as Christ followers, we stand in a place called grace. That, that we are, our relationship is always based on, he doesn't love us more some days than other days. He doesn't love us more when we're reading our Bible than we don't read our Bible. He doesn't love us more when we're, ba- we are his children and there's no condemnation for it because of the cross of Jesus, right? And so that's what the New Testament teaches. So the question is, what is James saying here? And on the surface, on the surface, it sounds like James is almost disagreeing, say, with Paul or with the other. But as you look closer, as you study Paul's writings, as you study what he means by justification, how he uses that word, as you study James' writing and, and what he means by justification, what you find is they're really saying the same thing. And, and that James gets this, that we're saved by faith. You know, Genesis, he quotes Genesis 15, we're credited by righteousness. But here's what James is saying, and it's what we've seen all through this letter that he's writing to people who are churchgoers, who claim to be Christ's followers, but are not following Christ. That's the whole context of this whole book. 
And what he's saying is that, yes, we're saved by faith alone, but he says, but true faith leads to action. And if there's no action in your life, then you don't have true faith. And if you don't have true faith, you're not saved because you're saved by true faith, by the real deal. That, that faith that claims to believe in Jesus but doesn't follow him doesn't really believe in Jesus. And that kind of faith is faux faith. It's fake faith, and fake faith can't save you because it's dead. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's kind of what he's laying out. Now, first case study then is Abraham. Second case study is a woman named Rahab. Now, some of you probably heard of it. How many of you heard of Rahab? Okay, good, all right. Uh, a lot of you haven't heard of Rahab, so let me, let me kind of tell you the story. Even for those of you who have probably forgot part of it. Uh, Rahab was not a Jewish woman. Rahab was a Gentile woman. In fact, she was a prostitute. She had a kind of uh, uh, owned a brothel. I don't know if it was a one, one woman show or whatever, brothel, whatever. She, in the town of, um, what I, and so uh, uh, I could have called it worse, but anyway, uh, I'm on my best behavior. Um, uh, she, she owned an establishment. Uh, uh, and, and it was in the city of Jericho in the red light district. And so, uh, so the, nation of, the nation of Israel, they are, uh, they're camped on the opposite side of the Jordan. Uh, they're going to cross the Jordan. They're going to take the promised land. And the first city they're going to come to is Jericho. So Joshua uh, commissions a couple spies to go in, check out Jericho, see what they're up against. And so uh, while the spies are in there doing their reconnaissance, someone recognizes them. Hey, you're not from around here. And, 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 and so it sounds the alarm, calls 911. Hey, I think we got some spies. And so, uh, so the authorities start doing a, a, you know, a search, a, a manhunt throughout the town to, to catch these guys. And they duck into the brothel because that's a great place to hide, right? Like if you're a stranger in town, you're a man. Like who's going to say, it's pretty normal. So we're going to jump in there. So, so, they, so they jump in there and, well, maybe not normal forever. You know what I'm saying? Gosh. I'm not, wow. I'm not, you know what I'm saying? It's just kind of good with me. All right. Just kind of help me out. So anyway. Uh, so uh, someone else calls 911. Hey, I think I spot them. Just went into Rahab's place. Okay. So, so uh, oh, I know where that is. So um, they, the, the, uh, the, you know. We just did a bus there last week. Let's, uh, let's kind of call the vice squad. Uh, we got we got a, we got a hot lead. So anyway, so they 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 send the cop cars over there, right, to to Rahab's place. Now, uh, Rahab, uh, they they come to the door, knock knock knock. Uh, hi, I'm Officer So and So. Do you have any spies here? And she says, No, 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 we don't have spies. We did have some spies. They they were here, uh, but but we uh, they're they're all finished, and so uh, they they're gone and. <laughs> I, just tell them the story. Just tell them the story. Right? So they, they left and they went that way, right? They, and she sends them off in the wrong direction. Now, the question is, why is she protecting these foreign spies, right? Well, well the, the, the deal is, is that Rahab has come to believe in the God of Israel. She's, come, she's heard about them. They're camped over there. It's a huge nation. She's heard the stories about their past. She's come to believe in the God of Israel. He is truly the God of all the earth and that he is with them and that, that they're going to invade and, and hurt, they're going to lose. And so because of that, she negotiates a deal with the spies. She goes with them and says, hey, she goes up to these guys and says, hey, look, I will hide you, but it's your life for my life and the life of my family. And so if I hide you here, if I protect you, uh, here's the deal. When you come with your, your troops, uh, I want you to protect me and my family 
uh, and so my life for your life. And they, they signed up for that deal, and that's why she protected them. And so uh, what James is saying is that that's how faith, act- faith works. When you believe something, you act on it. If you believe Israel's gonna win, you, make, you cut the deal. If you believe they're not gonna win, you don't cut the deal. You don't put your life at risk with your current authorities if you don't believe that God is going to win. Are, are you with me in this? It's how faith works, that faith takes action. And so he says, the uh, story of Rahab in verse 20. Uh, by the way, uh, Rahab, uh, you know, not only does she believe in the God of Israel and therefore she's saved, but it's just a beautiful story. She ends up marrying a Jewish man. They have a baby and guess what? She becomes the great, 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 grandmother of Jesus. And in Matthew chapter one, she's in the, the genealogy of Jesus, which just goes to show that we are saved by our faith, not by our actions, right? And that it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or how far you are from God. God has a place at the table for you because Jesus has died for everything that you've done. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and you think that he doesn't love you or he doesn't want you, uh, cheer up. Man, he wants us all. And uh, as we come in, it's not about us. It's all about him. Amen? Amen. It's just good news. That's awesome news. Now, okay, so he says, uh, in this way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did, her actions, when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Of course, they know the story. They didn't need that whole story like you did. But anyway, verse 26, uh, but it was more interesting the way we told it. it, uh, All right, so. Uh, So 26, and so he gets one final analogy. As the body without the spirit is dead, like if you have a body and you have no spirit, you don't have a person, you have a corpse. And so he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And so that's the passage. And and so there in your note sheet, there's a couple principles we want to roll out that flow out of this that are extremely important for us as Christ followers to understand what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it truly mean to be saved? And uh, and, and how does our faith grow? How, how do we uh, develop a relationship with God that's very real, genuine, authentic, powerful, life-changing, transforming? So here we go. Number one, the first principle is the most obvious one. It goes like this. Real faith takes action. Okay? So this is the one he's hammering on us the whole passage, uh, that real faith takes action. If you say you believe something, you will act as if it's true. If you, if you, if you, if you say you believe something, but you don't act as if it's true, then you're just fooling yourself. And we do that sometimes, right? Uh, we, we, we say we believe that exercise is a good thing. Well, do we exercise? You know, it's like, how bad do we believe? It's, we, it's easy to fool ourselves of what we really believe. And so, uh, so, so real faith takes action. Now, what I want you to see is this passage in chapter 2 does not come out of the blue. It's not like just he's writing along, oh, what should I talk about next? How about faith and works and how that relationship works? This passage flows out of his heart that it's really coming from the whole, the whole book, the whole letter. This has been his concern. James is writing to a group of church goers who think they're Christ followers, and many of them really aren't. They claim to be followers, but they're not. And, and we've seen this since chapter one. And so what I want to do is go back to chapter one, set it up, and see how chapter one leads into chapter two, just to kind of piece this all together so we can take it with us. So let's go back to chapter one and verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22, uh, we covered this a few weeks ago. And so he says, do not merely listen to the word, and so, what? What's the next word? Deceive yourselves. Can we say it all together? Don't just listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. I want that to sink in, because it's a very serious warning. 
Uh, he says, do what it says. What, what James is saying, you remember we talked about this, is it's possible to deceive ourselves spiritually, to think that we're following Jesus when we really aren't. And he says the way that happens is that we come to church, we read our Bibles, we go to our life group, and we, we listen to the word. And oftentimes we not just listen to the word, we love the word. You know, like, like last week, uh, uh, so many of you told me that you just love Peter's teaching. It was about time we got some good teaching. But uh, it was... Uh, <laughs> But I've recovered. It took me all week. But uh, no, so anyway, uh, so he's here. Uh, you know, Peter's here. And it was awesome, wasn't it? Wasn't it awesome? And I want to ask for a show. I know a lot of you went out and you told your friends, that was all, you got to get to the service. I'm sure many of you said, hey, you weren't here this week and you need to, uh, you need to podcast this. You need to, to download this message. We, we all went to our life groups. I'm sure we talked about how awesome it was, okay? So the question is, and, and I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm not even trying to make you feel guilty, though I could, but I won't. Um, <laughs> but the question is, his whole message was on prayer, right? So the question is, did you listen to the message? Yes, we listened. Did you like it? We love that message. Okay, so how did your prayer go this week? Right? Did you pray more this week? Did you do where for a prayer this week? See, that's the question. And what James is saying is it's so easy to fall in this trap of we listen to the message, we love the message, but we don't do the message. And he says when you do that, you deceive yourselves because you think you believe something when you really don't. Like, do you really believe that prayer changes things? The only way to figure that out is do you pray? If you say, I believe prayer works, but you don't pray, then you don't really believe prayer works. You see, that's just the way this is. And it's not some sort of spiritual thing. This is just the way life works. We do what we believe in every area of life. As human beings, God has wired us this way that it is impossible for us to do counter to what we believe. We do what we believe. Okay, and so this is why as Christ followers, we, we get to grow in our faith. And as we grow in our faith, we believe more, it transforms us more. You see how that works? And so here's what James is saying. He says, it's possible to deceive yourself. So now in this passage, he doesn't leave us hanging. He comes back and says, let me give you some examples of ways that we could deceive ourselves. We think we're doing the word when we're really not. And so in verse 26, Remember, he says, if anyone considers himself religious, and remember, he used that in a positive sense, spiritual, walking with God, true relationship. If anyone considers himself religious but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, we don't control our speech. We're always using foul language. We're lying. We're uh, outbursts of anger, uh, uh, critical, slander, you know, the, 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 the crimes of the tongue, so to speak. He says, if anyone considers himself kind of right with God, but doesn't keep a tight rein on his tongue, he what? He, so let's say it again, he what? He deceives. Well, I want you to see the, the flow of thought here. You, if, you, if you listen to the word and you love the word, but you don't do the word, you deceive yourself. Let me give you an example uh, if you think yourself religious and you don't control your language, that you deceive yourself. And then he goes on two more positive examples. Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless, the real deal, uh, is this, it's, it's to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And so we talked about this. And in fact, we, we said that when the Holy Spirit comes in a person, you truly believe in Jesus, the Spirit comes in your life, he begins to transform you from the inside out. And one of the first signs, a new love for God, a new love for people. There's a new compassion. And as we grow and we follow, we listen to the Holy Spirit, we follow his leading, our compassion grows, especially for those who are the least of these, who are unable to take care of themselves. And, and James says that's, that, that's what it looks like to truly be doing the work. And then he goes on, he gives us a third example, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so we, we've, come, we've all come to Jesus out of a polluted world. And he says, uh, 
that to follow Jesus means to, that we don't go back and keep getting polluted again. That, that, you know, what does that look like? It looks like sexual immorality. It looks like lying. It looks like stealing. It looks like slander. It looks like, like uh, uh, cheating. It looks like, you know, whatever evil else is there is. He says that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so he gives us three examples of here's what it looks like to do the work. It looks like uh, it looks like this. It looks like control, learning to control our speech. It looks like learning to care about the poor. It looks like uh, uh, learning to live a morally pure life. And, of course, he could have given us many more examples. Like, these aren't the three magic examples, right? It's like, well, if I got these three, he, like, earlier in chapter one, he talked about temptation and turning from temptation. Uh, later, he talked about the anger of man doesn't accomplish the purpose of God. So there's another example of doing the word. He talked to us two weeks ago on chapter two about prejudice and turning away from favor. These are all examples of doing the word. In fact, the whole book of James is telling us what it means to do the word. He's just giving us practical examples after example, okay? So what James is saying is that if you think you're doing the word, if you think you're following Jesus, but, but you're just listening and loving and you're not doing it, it's easy to deceive ourselves. So here's what I want you to catch. When we come into chapter two and he talks about f- true faith and how true faith leads to action, this is not a new topic. He is just giving us now the broad brush principle for all the specific illustrations he's getting. Are you, are you following me with this? He's stepping back and saying, let's talk about what does it really mean? It's almost like he's laid out some specifics. Hey, time out. Can we just talk here as a church? Honestly, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Can we just talk about that? What does it look like to be a true believer? You know, and how does our faith grow? And so in, that, in, that chap- in chapter two, then, he lays out the big picture principle that true faith always takes action, that, that we do what we believe. In fact, there in your note sheet, there's a great quote from uh, a man, some of you have heard of, sure, his name is Dallas Willard. Uh, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. It's not in our bookstore. <laughs> After last night, they said, hey, Mike, when you announce a book, you need to have it in the bookstore. Like, thank you, I'm still catching on. Uh, so don't go and ask for it afterwards is the point. Maybe next week. Maybe next. Uh, anyway, um, so, so Dallas, if you're not familiar with him, I think he's one of the, the best, uh, kind of greatest Christian thinkers of our day. He's a philosophy prof at USC. He used to be a pastor, a really passionate Christ follower, just a deeply thoughtful person. And uh, he wrote this book called The Divine Conspiracy. In part of the book, he talks about what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And again, we often have this idea like, oh, to all who believe, they, you know, so everyone who believes in him, they receive the gift of eternal. And we, we read that as kind of like, Oh, I went forward at a meeting at one point in my life. I, I, I believe the facts of Jesus' life. Yeah, I guess so. I believe it. And, and what, what the New Testament really is talking about, no, it's trust. It's trusting our life to, to Christ. Like, like if you believe Jesus is Lord, if you believe that, then you follow him because that's what you do with lords. Right? Like if Jesus is like Lord means like emperor. Okay? So what do you do with emperors? You say, yes, sir. That's what you say to emperors. You don't say, Caesar is emperor, but sorry, I'm going to do my own thing. That's not how it works. Okay? And so when we say Jesus is Lord, we are saying, I acknowledge he is the ruler of the universe, and I have brought my life under alignment. I have repented of my old life and running my own life and being my own God, and I have turned to Christ in faith and in repentance and I brought my life under his leadership. Jesus is Lord. 
Now, 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 now does that mean that we always get it right? No. Yes, no, it's good. Uh, yeah. no, 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 of course, we, we all fail in many ways, don't we? We say things we shouldn't say. We don't always have compassion like we should have compassion. We, there's areas of moral impurity we're still giving up. We don't always resist temptation. We fail. That's why Christ died. Our relationship with God, not based on our, our performance on his. 100%. Solid on that, right? We're clear on that. But, but when you say Jesus is Lord, that means he's your leader. And that means you follow his leadership. And what James wants us to get is if we claim that Jesus is Lord. In fact, in chapter 2, it starts off, my dear brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the chapter starts. If we claim Jesus is Lord, but we don't follow his leadership, and we say we believe in Jesus, we are simply fooling ourselves. We may be going to church, and we may be listening to the word, but we are not believers in Jesus, and we are not saved. Because true faith brings you under the leadership of Jesus. Okay? So that, that's his point. And so that's what Dallas is saying. Is to believe something, uh, here's what he says, to believe something is to act as if it's real. Okay? So let that sink in. I think it's an excellent definition of faith. It's very New Testament uh, to believe something is to act as if it's real. So we can say we believe whatever we want, but if we're not acting as if that is true, then we're just fooling ourselves, okay? So, so that's where he wants to start this discussion. That's his first main point, is that real faith takes action. Okay, now number two, the second thing he wants us to get, though, is that real faith grows through action. Like, like as, as, as followers of Jesus here at Rocky Peak, we don't just want to believe in Jesus in an initial way. We want to grow up. D don't you want that in your life? D don't you want to have a real relationship with Jesus? Don't you want to know him on a first-name basis? D don't you want to hear his voice in your life? Don't you want to be led by him? Don't you want to experience his life-transforming power? Don't you want his love? Don't you want his peace? Don't you want his joy? Don't you want his courage? Don't you want to be like him? Like, that's what it means, right? And, and here at Rocky Peak, we don't really have time for going through the motions. We don't have time for being church goers. That's not what we're about. Like, if you want a church that's comfortable, if you want a church that's just going to let you do whatever you want and claim to be a Christ follower, it's not here. Find somewhere else. We, we are here to follow Jesus, right? We, we want to be made like him, right? That's what we're here. We want to be transformed. And so you want that. I want that, don't you? When I pray, I, I'm praying for my life. It's like, God, would you reveal yourself more to me? I want to know you more. I want to experience your power in my life. I want to be changed. I want you to be the driving passion of my life, and, and I want to be used. And, and I'm sure that's what you're praying too. It's like this is, so how does that happen? How do we go from baby Christians who are kind of like young cults? Have you ever seen a young cult that's just been born? I know it's Los Angeles, <laughs> but like maybe like Discovery Channel or, you know, um, some documentary but maybe a science class in high school. But if you've ever seen, like, you know, the cult comes out, and have you ever seen a cult try to walk? It's really kind of, you know, it's hilarious or sad, depending on how you feel about animal. But it's kind of, uh, you, you, this thing is just his legs are so wobbly, right? So, you know, our faith is often like that. We start our journey with Jesus. We believe in him. We truly do. But we 
we have weak faith. We, we don't really fully see. In fact, in, Paul talks about believers who have weakened faith. They're, they're younger believers. And we start, we're off, we don't have full confidence. We don't have full confidence in God. We don't have ultimate clarity on spiritual reality. We're still struggling with certain things and, and it's kind of one foot forward and one step back. And, and so that's how we often start. We start like a cult. But what happens to that young cult? The young cult uses its legs. It begins to wobbly step forward. And you come back a year or two later. Have you ever seen like in Kentucky, they got the green grass and you got those, those beautiful horses out there just running wild. And it's like, if someone were to put those two pictures side by side and say, how did this colt become this race-winning, amazing horse? You say, well, he used what he had. He took a step on the little faith he had. And you know that's exactly how our faith grows? And let me, like, like think of someone that you know, like you want to be like who's a Christ follower. Someone Someone in your life, you say, man, if I, I wish I could be like him. I wish I could be like her. They just, their passion for God, their confidence in the scripture, um, their love for people, their courage, their steadfastness under pressure, uh, their joy in life. And you look at say, I would love to be a Christ follower like that person. Can I tell you something? That person wasn't born that way. They weren't born again that way. That, that they came out, they had wobbly legs of a colt. But what I can tell you is the way they got that way is by a series of steps of faith, a series of steps of obedience. Like their journey may be different than Abraham's journey, but I can almost guarantee you they've had a journey. They have a story. They have a story about times in their life where God asked them to step out and take a risk, and it was very scary. And they trusted him, and they stepped out. They will have stories in their life where God asked them to trust him for the impossible. Like maybe it was in their marriage, maybe it was in their career, but there was something that seemed impossible. But as they're praying, God spoke to their heart and said, I will, I will do this. Will you trust me to do this? And they did. Like Abraham trusted for a son, they trust him for a miracle. And they, they've lived long enough to see it happen. There's been times of deep sacrifice where God's come to them and asked them for their Isaac. Maybe not in the same way, but there's times in their life where he's come and he's put his finger on the most important thing in their life, that which has become a God in their life. And he said, will you take this son, he's buying me a gift of your only son, and will you surrender him to me? And they've taken that step. Can, can I tell you something? When you see a passionate, mature, strong Christ follower running through the fields of life. Can I tell you something? That person has been on a journey of faith. And the way that they become that person is because at the different junctures of their life, when God has asked them to obey and it's been hard, they've obeyed. When he's asked them to risk when it's been hard, they've taken the risk. When he's asked them to believe the impossible, they've operated on the little faith they've had. And over the years, they've changed. You see, Abrahams aren't born overnight. And when God first came to Abraham, he didn't say to him, Abraham, you're 75, it's the first time we'd met, I'd like you to take your wife and go sacrifice her. That's not the first, that's not the first, he didn't say, take your dearest person and go, that's not what he said. He said, I will go with you, I want you to leave your homeland, and I will bless you. 
That was the first thing he asked. It was a big step. It was a hard step, but it was one he was capable of taking. And later on, the steps got harder. You see, and as he took those steps, his faith was strengthened. And the word James says is his faith was perfected. And this I want you to go back to James chapter 2 and verse 22 and see how he puts it. In James 2 and verse 22, he says, You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete. And remember, that's the Greek word teleao, which means perfect or mature. And here's what I want you to catch. What he's saying that in the act, in the very act of taking his son up this mountain, his faith was perfected. Do you follow this? If you asked him, do you believe God is in this? Yes. Do you believe that if you, if you sacrifice your son, God will raise him to that? He would say yes. But there's something about acting and going the distance that changes you. There's something about acting that changes you. And, and so in your life, how does faith grow? Well, it grows when you act. James has given us several examples. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes in your life, you're in a, mess, you're in a weekend message, and we talked for a week, that week on anger. And, and here's the reality. All your life, you've defended your anger. All your life, you've said, it's not your fault, it's your spouse's fault. If they wouldn't push your buttons, you wouldn't get angry. It's not your fault, it's these, it's these stupid idiots at work. If they weren't such idiots, I wouldn't have to blow my, I have to blow my cool because I just blow my talk is the only way to get anything done. And so all your life, you've gone through defending your anger. All your life, you've held on to your finances. You've not been a generous person. And, and, and so you've always had a reason for that. There's certain areas of moral impurity you've held on to. Well, that was a different day and age and things are different now, right? And, and so there's these areas of our life and the Holy Spirit comes and he brings the word of God. And he speaks into your life, and God says, I need you to take a step of faith. I need you to stop defending that anger. I, I need you to lay it down. I need you to go to your spouse and apologize and take ownership. I need you to go back to the guys of the office and apologize. That you need to stop. You need to, you need to understand that if you're going to follow me, you have to deal with your anger. And as you take that step, you are changed. See? And as the opportunity comes up to give to the poor or to advance the movement of Jesus, and, and, and the word is taught, and the Holy Spirit's saying to you, you need to write that check. But Lord, who will take care of me? Or they have enough money? Or who, you know, what are the things? You know, no, you need to write that check. You need to reach out. And as you write that check, guess what? You are changed in the process. And, and as you go that area of moral impurity that you've been struggling with, and, and, or this, this issue of worldliness, and as God convicts you and the word speaks and as you act, you are changed. You see? So, so we're not saved by our works. But true faith always leads to works. And as we act, we are changed in the process. See how that, that works? Let's pray to God. Father, we want to be a church of true Christ followers. We want to be transformed to be like you. And so we come today and we thank you first for the cross of Jesus Christ that makes all things new. We thank you that our relationship with you is never based on our performance. It's always based on yours. 
But we also thank you that the faith that you give us, that it changes us. It changes us at a core level. And as it changes us, we act and we step out and we're changed even more and we're transformed to be like you. And so we we pray that that would be the case in our our life. While our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I just want to ask you uh, a couple questions. Here's my first question for you. Don't answer it too quickly. Just, Just let it sit with it a minute. The question is, do you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Do, do you believe in Jesus? Let's put it that way. Do you believe in Jesus? And, and before you're too quick to answer, the, my next question would be, does your life support that? And here's my next question for you. Do you believe in the word of God? Because here's what James would say. We only believe the parts we're obeying. Okay, so, so do you believe in Jesus? James would say, well, only if you're following. Do you believe the word only if you're obeying and that anything else is not real faith, it's faux faith, and that kind of faith can't save you and it can't transform you and we're deceiving ourselves. And so here in the quietness of this moment, is there anything you need to surrender to him? Is, is there anything that you need to obey him with? Is there any risk he's asking you to take? Is there something he's asking you to trust him to do that seems impossible? See, these are the questions of faith. These are the questions that as we follow, transform us. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in our lives, personally as a church, that we would truly be transformed to be the people you've called us to be as we step out and act on the faith that you give us. And God, one of the areas you've asked us to act, you've asked us to trust, is in the area of our finances. You've said, give and it will be given to you. And you've said that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money. And you've called us to give, to give to fund your ministry, to fund the poor. And so God, we, we come now, we bring you our offerings as an act of faith, as an act of uh, action that flows out of true faith. We pray that you'd use these gifts to extend your kingdom. And as we worship you now, and as we sing this song about taking our life and let it be all for thee, Lord, we pray that it would truly be the expression not of our lips, but of our hearts, as out of our true faith, we respond and give ourselves back to you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Lord, that's our prayer. You take our lives, take all of us. God, we want to be true Christ followers. We don't want to be people who say, we believe Jesus is Lord and don't live it out. We want to be transformed. We want to be transformed by acting on the faith that you've given us, knowing that our relationship with you is completely a gift of your grace, knowing that it grows as we follow the leading of your spirit step by step in acts of obedience and faith. And so, Lord, we pray you teach us as a church. And if there's an area of our life that you want to speak to us about this week, It's our first step. We pray you'd make that clear, that we would surrender, that we would trust, that we would step out, and that our legs would be strengthened as we move from being colts to being racehorses. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I just want to encourage you to do that. It was was a beautiful thing. After the service last night, a lady came up, and she said, Mike, what's the first step? Like, where do I? And God's just spoken to me. Where's my first step? And I 
I told her what I always tell people. This is not complicated, you know? It's just, it, this is just like, you just need to ask God, what's the step? You know, is there any steps you have for me to take? And then if he shows you, you do it. If he doesn't show you anything, you just go on and let him know. If there's anything in the future, let it you know, you know? <laughs> uh, that you'll, you'll be ready. You'll be ready to follow. Uh, and so it's just simple, you know? And I just encourage you, if, if you're feeling God speak today and calling you a new level relationship or calling you to Christ for the first time, I encourage you just to get, get aside with him and say, Father, I want to give you my life and just what is my step? Is there a step? And if there is, take it. And I told her that she smiled and she said, I know what my step is. And I said, what's your step? And it was an amazing step. She said, I went through a divorce seven years ago. The Holy Spirit has been speaking into my life. He's calling me to go back and reconcile with my husband. That's quite a step, isn't it? Amen. That's quite a step. Amen. But the beautiful thing was what she said. The Holy Spirit has been speaking and calling to me. And that's the way it works. This is not rocket science. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. It's very simple. You listen to the Spirit and you follow what he tells you. And as you act... And as you follow, you're transformed and changed in the process. Amen? Amen? Amen. So may you act on what God is putting in your heart this week. And I ask you, I hope you can come with next week. You know, one of the passages we looked at today, James said, if you claim to be religious, spiritual, relationship with God, and you do not control your tongue, you are deceiving yourself. And so one of James' really passions is that as Christ followers, uh, as human beings, one of the privileges God has given us is to speak. And that our words have power. Our words have the power to build up. Our words have the power to tear down. That even as God speaks and creates, that he's given us limited creative power through our words. Words to bless, words to destroy. And that one of the most important parts of being a Christ follower is learning to turn our words to words that build and don't destroy. And so next week, his topic is the power of words. And I hope you can be here. It's going to be good. God bless you. See you then. Well, that's going to do it for this week's message. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have putting it together. Please visit us at rockypeak.org where you can download more messages or have your questions answered. Remember, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast for free by searching for The Church at Rocky Peak from within the music store in your iTunes software. For Lead Pastor Mike Yearly and everybody up here at The Peak, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.